Sorry about that. I got caught up in the fellowship, which is great, isn't it? Great. You guys like the fellowship, which is amazing. And uh, so we love that. Wow. This is the most anybody's listened to me in two weeks. <laughs> That's a little inside joke. But anyway, not really. But, um, well, we're going to start the book of John. And um, I'm praying that uh, you would, that the Lord would do something in your life over the next several probably months that we do this that you never knew before. Uh, John's a different book now. You know, when you grow up, you learn the Gospels. There's four of them. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, some people don't know this, but not all of those people are disciples, the 12 disciples. You get that, right? And that's okay if you don't. Matthew is a disciple. John is a disciple. Mark's not. He's just an acquaintance of Peter. Luke, a physician of Paul. So you're getting two first-hand accounts. But here's, I shouldn't probably say that. Because the first three Gospels are what called synoptic. That means see-through, to look through. The fourth gospel is not a synoptic gospel. In fact, uh, it's just a different book. It's written for a different purpose. And I want you to know that purpose. John, can you believe this? 92% of the information in the book of John is unique just to the book of John. Matthew's at 42%, Mark's at 7%, Luke's at 59%. The point is, John is writing for a specific purpose. And he actually tells you the purpose, but later in the book. Turn with me to John chapter 20. As we explore, what is the purpose of the book? Different than the synoptic gospels. The synoptic or synopsis is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, not a synoptic gospel, written for a different purpose. And in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he gives it to you finally. He says this, And truly, Jesus did many other signs, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Here it comes, verse 31. Why, John, did you write the book of John? But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Pretty plain. So you say to yourself, well, I'm already saved. I know that I'm saved. I have a relationship with Jesus. So I've already got that taken care of, you might be saying to yourself. See, 
I think the book of John does two things. As we focus more, listen to this, write it down if you have to. As we focus more in the book of John on who Jesus is, as opposed to the synoptic gospels, which tell you more about what Jesus did and taught, John's completely different. And it comes right out of the gate. Chapter, verses 1, 3, 4, 5, right in there, boom! John wants to tell you who Jesus is. So if you're already a believer, a truster in Christ, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what I think the book of John does for you? It helps you do what you've always <laughs> been intended to do. Here it is, to worship the Lord. There's a great difference between knowing about Christ, and I'm not diminishing the other Gospels, they're important, just as important, it's just different. There's a great difference between knowing about Christ and knowing Christ. And Paul, or excuse me, and John knew it oh so well. Here's why. You know early in the ministry of John, he and his brother are called a son of thunder in the book of Mark. In other words, John and his brother had an anger management problem. That's what we'd call it today, wouldn't we? Early in the ministry of Jesus, as they go do things, I mean, John has a couple episodes, we'll talk about them as we go along here, where you're like, dude, calm down. But guess who wrote the book of love in the Bible? <laughs> and all his writings, John, five books, John, even I can do this, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, book of Revelation, no one writes more about love than John. Here he goes, he goes from a son of thunder to the apostle of love. What happened? He met the risen Lord. He knew, he understood what Christ did for him. So much so, isn't it beautiful, that in his own book, he doesn't call himself John, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. See, that's where you're going with this. If you say you're a believer, well, John 20, 30, and 31 doesn't really apply to me because I'm a believer. Well, you're going to know more and more when we get done with this book about who Jesus is and guess what it's going to cause you to do? Worship him more and more. I mean, we could say a lot of things about what is worship, right? What is worship? Worship is putting God in his proper place and you in your proper place submitted to him through his son, Jesus Christ, sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's worship. We think of worship as just singing. That's not all of it, not just what all of it is. I mean, your work can be worship. Your play can be worship. Your vacation, everything can be worship. Because we know that it's all from God. 
You get it? I mean, what else is worship? You, you know, here's what I think worship is. The Bible says that he inhabits our praises. I don't know why it is, but when we worship, when we're stopped thinking about ourselves so much and think about the Lord and pour out our hearts to him, I don't know why this is, but he comes close. He, he inhabits our praises. I even would say, when do you feel most loved? I think it's when you're worshiping. Isn't that weird? You're pouring out, but you feel loved. Worship is a sign or a signal, ready? That the Lord Jesus Christ has captured your heart. You say, well, do I have to put my hands up? Do I have to clap? Nope, you don't have to do any of that. You could be doing it right there, sincerely, deeply moved by who Jesus is. But see, there are some churches over here. They teach you nothing about the Bible. You don't know his word, so you're just uh, ramping up the electric guitars and the things so that you can get emotional. That's not worship. And there are some churches that, you know, if you clap, they want to put you, you know, downstairs in church jail or something, right? Because, you know, you can't show too much emotion, which is really weird because I'll go to a football game with you and see how much emotion you pour out. And I'll be there with you, by the way. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying? There's this healthy pouring out of our soul, our our spirit to, to the Lord. The Lord tells us that we'll worship him in spirit and in truth. You have to have both. And that's the point of John. I asked Autumn to make us a little social media graphic about us going through the book of John. And I texted her from, I don't even know where I was yesterday, maybe Chicago, and said, how about an eagle? Let's have an eagle. She's like, eagle? And I don't blame her for saying that. Well, here's why. You know that an eagle <laughs> can look into the sun as he's soaring? It's one of the only birds that can do it. They can look right into the sun and they soar. Guess what you're going to be doing as you look at the book of John? You're going to be looking at who the sun really is and you're going to soar. Well, here's what I want to tell you, too. I, I don't think you could properly, properly understand this book unless you knew who John was or is. When I was a kid, I would read through the Bible, and I'd get really mixed up, especially in this book. You know why? Because right here in the first chapter, they talk about some guy named John who was baptizing people in the Jordan. I'm like, oh, the author. Not the author. So who is John the writer? Well, if you looked at Matthew 4, we know that his father's name was Zebedee. Did you know that? And if you look in Matthew 27, I think it's there that says that this lady named Salome was married to Zebedee. I think you could look in Mark as well. And some people, based on John 19.25, but you need to be a Berean right here and look at it for yourself. Some people believe that uh, uh, Salome may be, have been a sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. 
And if that's true, then John was related to Jesus. You be a Berean there. Look at it for yourself. Well, we know this, don't we? Because six or seven of the disciples were these. John was some sort of uh, fisherman or was a fisherman. And it seems like he was a fisherman with his brother, his dad, and also he had a partner, and his name was Simon, Peter. You can look that at the Bible. And if, you know, you go and you have a little boat, well, that's good, but, but it seems that Zebedee, the dad, and, and these brothers, including John, had a fishing business because they employed hired servants, and you can find that in the first chapter of Mark. What's fascinating, though, is in the book of John, when all the events started centering around Jesus' last week of his life where he marched to the cross, in John 19, it's mentioned that John, the writer, had a house in Jerusalem. Hmm. Which means he might have had some means of some sort. If if you know the geography of Israel, Jerusalem's way south from Galilee where Capernaum is. So he had a house, and not only that, the book of John tells us that the high priest at the time that Jesus was being tried and crucified was an acquaintance of John. So John had some, you know, could move in circles in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? You could read about that in John 18, 15 through 16. Well, if you look here in the first chapter, it seems that John, the writer, had some sort of, or maybe followed and was part of the following that John the Baptist was uh, having out in the Judean desert. And you can look at that in John 1, 35 through 40. If that's true, you know John the Baptist was related to Jesus, which means... If you look at all these verses, it's possible that Jesus, John the Baptist, and John were all related. Possible. You can look that up and make your own decisions on that. Well, uh, I told you that he was a son of thunder. I just wanted to let you know that's in Mark 3, verse 17. The incidents that I described to you of him kind of losing his mind a little bit, was in Mark 9, 38. He forbids a stranger to use the name of Jesus in casting out demons. He's sort of rebuked for that, John is. And remember, he had a desire to call down fire on the Samaritans, people who were different than him. Sound like Facebook? Luke 9, that's in Luke 9. Here's another important thing, and I'll get on with the story. John was part of that inner circle that seems to Jesus seemed to have ministered to. Do you remember that inner circle? He was uh, uh, spoken of as the disciple of whom Jesus loved, but he was with uh, Peter, do you remember that, and James, who would do certain things with Jesus in a more intimate way. Do you remember that? Including going up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, and remember, they went farther in at the Garden of Gethsemane. They seemed to be something that Jesus was trying to teach these three. We don't know about 
what happened to John, we do know some things in his older life, but where did he end up and where did he die? The tradition, extra-biblical tradition, says he spent his old age, uh, you know, you know about Patmos, but he spent uh, his old age in Ephesus, which is in Turkey, uh, and he possibly wrote this gospel and revelation from there. Now, this book is generally accepted as being written around 90 A.D. Remember, Jesus lived until, and he died and rose again, around 30 A.D. So it's around 90 A.D. that he's writing these things. Most people believe that it's the last gospel to be written. Now, all that's important because there's some debates about that, but that's a sermon for another time, okay? But really, uh, uh, that's it. The oldest fragment of the Bible that we've ever found is John 18, and that was found in Egypt. So you see, when I say the oldest fragment of the Bible, I mean the closest in time to Jesus's life, which gives a lot of credence to the book of John, because here's why. It had to have been circulated around and around and around and ended up in Egypt, and they found it over there. And that's some of John 18. Isn't that fascinating? Okay, I'll get on with the story. But you see, here's why I do that. I have to know who the players are or it doesn't make sense to me. And I think that might be the same for you. And once you get the players, the Lord will touch your heart. In fact, do you know this? The greatest question Jesus ever asked his disciples, it happened at a place that we just went on our trip. It happened at um, Caesarea Philippi, way up in the north of Israel, and it's a place called the Gates of Hell. You ever heard about the Gates of Hell? You know Jesus said the Gates of Hell won't prevail against the church. Remember that? Well, in Matthew 16, 15, do you know what he did? He asked his disciples the most important question. Here it comes. Who do you say that I am? And then he went on to describe who he is, and he said the gates of hell won't uh, prevail against. But here, here's the point. Here, here's why I'm saying this. Each one of you in your own life have to address that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And you're looking at me and you're like, well, I know, you're the pastor. You have to say stuff like that. Well, yeah, okay. You're going to get a knock on your door. And there are these people with these watchtowers, and they're going to sound spiritual, man. And it's all going to sound good and nice and all that sort of thing, and they're going to sort of go through it with you, and it's going to seem like it has logic, but it's not the same Jesus that they're preaching. There's other groups. And John is so important because it teaches you who Jesus is. Not who groups say it is. It's really important. So we have to say, we have to answer the question, who do you say that I am? We have to know this. And when we know who Jesus is, A, maybe you're sitting here and you don't know if you're going to heaven or have eternal life. Well, this whole book, that's what he wants to do, is make sure you know 
But if you're here and you already have salvation, guess what this book is going to do? It's going to help you dialogue with other groups, but also, oh, you're going to worship so hard after this. You're just going to want to worship the Lord wherever you are, because here's why. Because God's going to take the Word of God into the heart of a child of God, and you're going to, you won't be able to help yourself. You're going to pour out your praise unto Him. That's the goal of John. 15-minute introduction. Not so bad, right? Well, here we go. I'm going to read the first five verses, and we're going to look at that for a little bit. But before I do, let's pray. Lord, thanks for this morning, and thank you for these people. I pray that you'd bring these scriptures to our hearts and our minds in a way, Lord, that's so powerful, because your word is powerful, your spirit has the resource to do it, teach us all truth, that you would touch us in our hearts, and then we'd go back out wherever we go on Sunday nights or Sunday afternoons. And I pray you'd give us opportunities to share what we know about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here we go. Let's read together uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It's this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, Alan Redpath says this. It's the perfect way to describe the book of John. He says that the book of John is a pool like a swimming pool, if I'm saying it with my Ohio accent, a pool in which a child may wade, but also an elephant may swim. John is a pool in which a child may wade, and yet an elephant may also swim. The book of John is simple, yet profound. I mean, school-age children can get it, but the more that we read it and the more that we study it and the more that we look at it, we say, oh my, there's more there. There's more meat on these bones. We could get more from it. So here's what we're going to do. In the beginning was the word. By the way, the Church of England, every Christmas day, what do they read? Every, church, or every Christmas day, they read verses 1 through 13. It's their reading in the Church of England. I think it's an amazing idea. Because in the beginning was the Word. What do you think about if you know hardly anything of the Bible? What do you automatically think about when you hear in the beginning? Genesis. You think of Genesis, right? You say, in the beginning, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You knew that. You were a little kid and you got your crayons out and the Sunday school teacher couldn't handle you because you were running around so she had you or he had you, right? And you, you colored the story of that creation account. And you know it, even if you don't know a lot about the Bible. But here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as John is opening up the evidences for who Christ really is for both the Jew and the non-Jew, the Gentile. That's what this book does. It opens it up for everybody. 
He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And so, you know that the Jewish people would know Genesis, right? And the Greek-speaking world, which was the non-Jew at this time, see, they debated all this stuff. Who created the world? How did we come about? And they, this was the things that they sat in the marketplace, or they had the lectures at the university, and they discussed these things. This was important to a Greek how did we get here? We still ask these questions. It's a fundamental question. It's wrecked our school systems publicly because the school systems say you're a, you've climbed out of the primordial soup, and so really you're just sort of an accident. But the Bible says you're not an accident. So it's relevant even today. And back then they would debate it. Where did you come from? <laughs> I just thought of Cotton Eye Joe. But anyway... Where did you come from? It's a fundamental question. Where did you come from? And here, to open up John under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, in the beginning was the Word. So you and I, before we leave today, we have to figure out who's the Word? What's the Word? What do you mean the Word? Well, in the beginning was the Word. It evokes this thing, this creation by God. God, in the beginning, He created the heavens and the earth. We get oriented that way. And then He says, in the beginning was the Word. And the phrase He used, or the verb He uses here in the Greek, is the imperfect tense was. It means at the time that the beginning began, if I can say it that way, whatever it is that's the Word, or whoever it is the Word, they were there already. In other words, whoever the word is or whatever the word is, when God created the beginning, the word already existed and had always existed. That's what the verb tense means. See, that's powerful. You say, well, okay, I know you're, you're the pastor, but see, when you get the knock... There's certain groups in our culture right now that don't believe Jesus was eternal. They believe Jesus was created. In fact, there's a book. One of the New Testament letters says Jesus was the firstborn over all creation. And they jump up and down without reading the rest of the Bible. Say, see, he was created. And it doesn't mean that at all. It means that Jesus is number one. Here, I'll explain it. The firstborn over all creation doesn't mean Jesus was born. It means he's the best. It's not about chronology, that scripture. It's about quality. Like, I told you this. One time I was down in the downtown area, and there was these Jehovah's Witnesses witnessing to me. And I said, it was just when the Penguins had won the Stanley Cup. And I said, who was number one in the NHL? This is how I think. I know, I'm weird. And they go, well, the Penguins are number one. I said, well, that's weird because they weren't the first team ever to be created. And they're looking at me like, you're weird. What are you talking about? And I'm like, you use that verse, guys, gals. It doesn't mean that. So this is important. That's my point. This has practical application. You and I need to know who Jesus is. And when we know who Jesus is, we pour out our heart in praise to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The verb tense means, oh, he was always there. He's always been. Was the Word. 
And the Word was with God. This is important for the Trinity. Yes, the Trinity itself, the word Trinity, not here, but it's taught everywhere. And here it is. And the Word was with God. So whoever or whatever the Word is, at the time of creation, it had all existed, the Word had existed for all time and was there at the beginning, but it was distinct from God the Father. Yet, the Word was God. So here you have John here, right out of the gate, telling you that in the beginning was this Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's not mutually exclusive, and that's the point. The person that he's talking about here, the Word, is both distinct from God and yet is God. (laughs) And you say, well, I can't understand it. Well, we will when we get to heaven, folks. It's taught here. Three persons of the Trinity, one God. How many gods we believe in? One. How many persons? Three. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Distinct persons, yet God. Later on, he's going to be called the Son of God. We'll talk about that when we get to it. But he's also the God's Son. Get what I just said there? He's the Son of God. Yes, he's the Son of God, by the way. Well, anyway, I'll tell you that later. But he's also the God's Son. In the beginning was the Word. At the beginning of time that God created, the Word was already there and had already existed. And he was with God, distinct, part of the Trinity, and yet he was God. He was God. Remember, Jesus later in this book says, I and the Father are one. Groups, Some groups, folks, don't say that. Or believe it. See, when you think of that, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You go, wow. God is huge and big and eternal and timeless, and I'm not. Worship. There it is. Worship. Well, let's talk about the word, word for a minute. Well, first of all, what are words? Well, they communicate things. They're sounds that we make, and we, God's given us a language and given other different people languages, but they're sounds that come out, and they mean things, and they go into the brain, and you and I can understand things better when we understand the words. It was really difficult driving in the bus with our guide and our driver who are speaking Hebrew. You're going, I have no idea what these two are saying. (laughs) And then, boom, they switch to English, and woo, you got it. You're clued in. You know the itinerary. We know where we're going because they're communicating stuff. Words communicate things. Words orient people. Words help people. Words shine light on things you don't understand. Words make people feel better, all kinds of things. But the interesting thing about this word, you know the Bible was, the New Testament was written in Greek, right? Do you know that? Well, you do. This word is the word logos or lagos, however you want to say it. 
You say, well, I know. I've been to the bookstores back when they used to have bookstores, so I know what logos means. Really? Do you? Well, see, here's the uh, uh, clever thing that the Holy Spirit did right here. So fascinating. He inspired Paul, or excuse me, I keep saying Paul because we've just been doing his letters. He inspired John to say, in the beginning, evoking these things that God would do, was the word, the logos. And now see, here's where he opens up the whole kit and caboodle for everybody in the world, Jews and Gentiles. And he uses this word. It's the perfect word that could ever be used because this would evoke for the Jewish mind. See, when, when the Jews would use the word, the word, or the phrase, the word, they would think of God. They would think of God. Here, here, let me give you an example. In Exodus 19.17, in an ancient Hebrew edition of the Old Testament, they changed it. They changed it from this. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Watch this. In their ancient Hebrew text, they changed Exodus 19.17 to Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet the word of God. Their thought about the word wasn't just communication, but they thought that the word could do things. What do you mean? Psalm 33, verse 6. Listen to this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. That's in the Hebrew now. It's in the Old Testament. But to a Jewish person, when they hear word, they think of God. Exodus 19, 17, they think the word does more than just express an idea. It actually does things like the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, he sent his word and healed them, Psalm 107. You all tracking with me now? I'm trying to explain to you why this word is perfect for both the Jew and the Gentile. And see, there's several places in the Old Testament. I gave you Exodus 19:17 where it would bring certain things into the idea or into the mind of the Jewish person. That phrase, the word. Here's the last one. He sends forth his command to the earth. Psalm 147. In other words, he's going to send his word or commands to the earth. Where did Jesus come out of? The heavens. So it's the perfect word to use for the Jewish people, but ah, it's perfect for the Greek or the Gentile. Here's why. You know that philosophy was so important to the non-Jewish world. It was important to the Jews too, but it was everything to the Greeks. You know this. And logos, it came to mean this idea that there was this power that set the world in perfect order. Because they would look at the world and they would see all the chaos in the world, but they thought, well, shoot, there's a lot of chaos, but why don't we just spin out of control and blow up sort of thing? What is it that's holding everything together? And they thought that this reason and this order in the universe was by the Logos, <laughs> Whatever that was to them. Are you understanding me? So Plato thought even that the Lagos kept the planets in orbit, kept everything together. Isn't that interesting? 
and many others. You could read many other uh, 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 philosophers of that time, especially of the Greek persuasion, that would speak about this thing. In other words, this logos is the reason things work. And they thought that it's what animates something. It's like at the center of a person. I don't think you're getting this because now when you put this all together for both the Hebrew mind or the Jewish mind and the non-Jewish mind, he says in the beginning was the word and it explodes upon them like nothing could ever do. Because what he's saying is everything you've ever debated about life, where you came from, why you're alive, what's your purpose of your life, how you are have any sort of, you know, joy and peace and strength and uh, direction. Everything that keeps you held together is him. (laughs) That's what he says right here. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, as we go through John, it's going to become apparent to you who this is or what the word is or who the word is. It's Jesus himself. But if you don't believe me by saying that based on what I think you'll read just in the book of John, why don't you just turn back to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation? I didn't have this planned, it just came to me in my memory, and I was a little worried, but it's right. Roman, or Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, this is talking about when Jesus comes back to rule and reign the earth. He's coming back in judgment, folks. It's true. And when he comes back in verse 11, it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and make war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Oh, boy. Jesus is the Word. Now remember, if you turn your Bibles, and even I can find this, to the first chapter of Genesis, I want you to see how powerful it is that John would use logos. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And it's fascinating because right there you have God. They use the word in the Hebrew, not singular word for God. They used more than one word, uh, more than one. Not one singular God, more than one God. Not that we serve more than one God. We don't. We serve one God, but watch this. And the darkness was on the face of the deep, and here it comes, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God the Father you see in the first few chapters, God the Spirit you see in the first chapter, and you say, well, where's Jesus? It comes in the next verse. Then God 
said. The word of God. God spoke these things into existence. Here you see God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son in the first three verses of the Bible. And what I'm trying to tell you is Jesus, the word we know, is eternal. And he's the perfect thought. He gives you direction and purpose and meaning and everything else. He keeps your life from being chaotic. He's so powerful, he's actually spoken the world into existence because he was already there at the time it was began. And if you look in Colossians, it says this, that he created the worlds. The Father had the plan and Christ executed it, so to speak. And so when you go back and you say, in the beginning was the word, well, you say it and read it in English, and it doesn't have the the layer of depth to this. But when you look all throughout the Bible, you go, whoa. He's opened it up for everybody, anybody, all of us, no matter what background we come from, he's saying, come to the gospel, the good news of God breaking into the world to save man from their sins. That's what he's saying right there. Well, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And you could just go. I referred to it. Go to Colossians 1.16 and you, you read through that. By the way, right there in Colossians, it tells you the purpose for your life. You got to, as a parent or a grandparent, or you got to get this through to your kids. I need to remember this. He's not made for us. If you're teaching your kids that, oh no, get it right now, they're made for him just like you're made for him. It says it right there that we're made for God. He's not our butler, kids, parents, grandparents. We're his servants. We're under him in submission to him, and that's the safest and best place to be. It's powerful. Don't teach your kids that they're the center of the universe because they're not. You bring a kids like that, you're going to have spoiled, rotten brats. You put God in the center of the universe, love him with all your heart, and then love each other, as the Bible says. But we circle around him, and that's powerful. And you teach and know and live your life like that. See, it rubs off on your family. Your family gets it. They begin to know that we're in submission to the Lord. See, here's what I'm trying to tell you. It's worship. That's how you worship as a family. When we, our kids were young, we weren't big on like getting them and marching them into the living room and sitting them down. We just weren't big on this. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just probably not our lifestyle to do it that way. And, you know, read Leviticus about, you know, whatever, and then tell me how. That's not certainly how we did it. We would just ask the questions at dinner time. And we would talk about how the Lord is the one we worship. And how do we do that in our lives? And just sort of as you're eating, you're having a devotion, and they don't even know it. That's why in the book of Deuteronomy, the Lord says, everything you do, when you take them out of bed, talk about me. When you get them up out of bed, talk about me. When you're going about your day, talk about me. But not just talk about me. Explain to them who God really is and Jesus really is and talk about it and they'll know and they'll follow him, you see. 
Now, of course, there's free will, and people make their own decisions. And so, uh, you know, sometimes we come into those prodigal situations. But the point I'm telling you is this, these verses have everything to do with all of your life, every area of your life. This has to do with it. And if you don't get this, worship will be shallow, but you, you folks aren't shallow. But I'm just saying, in the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, and the Word was God. I know I'm repeating myself. I want us to memorize it. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. But remember, Colossians says, not only were all things made through Him, but you were made for Him. That's my whole point. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. In this book, you're going to find out about what real life is. See, you think real life is Martha Stewart having all the plates, making it Christmassy, putting it on Instagram, having everybody desire everything you have. Your car is beautiful. Your house is beautiful. Your wife is beautiful. Your, uh, your, your vacations are beautiful. And everything looks great and all that sort of thing. And you just sort of put it up there. And the Bible tells us that is just emptiness. If you're living your life for that, you're always going to be empty. Here he tells us what real life is. Life John chapter 7, that pours out of you. You're just so excited. You're so dynamic. Not you, but the Lord living through you. And you have an adventurous life. And you have an amazing life. And materialism doesn't even impact any of that. You just have a life that's flowing with the living water of the Holy Spirit. Remember now, this guy John was probably wealthy. And the reason I'm telling you that is he came to the conclusion none of that mattered. What mattered was real life. The life of Jesus in you, flowing through you to other people. That's what mattered. In him, the word, Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. Now this, I need to tell you, is a big theme in the book of John. It's all over the place. In fact, he is the light of the world. You know this. And you could see it everywhere in the book of John, 8, 12, 9, 12, 46. You even read it in the first chapter of his book called 1 John. It's, it's big to him. And what's light? I mean, light, you, you, you know, if you come in here at night, it is, it's sort of creepy. I just got to tell you, you come up here and the radiators are whistling and you're by yourself and you're always looking behind your back and all that sort of thing. But anyway... If you come in here at night, one time birds got in here, and I think Tim Antonelli got his BB gun, and we tried to get him out, but <laughs> anyway, that was on a Sunday morning. That was sort of creepy, too, uh, but, but anyway, uh, you know, if you come in here at night, and it's dark, and you're a little nervous or whatever, you, you don't karate chop the darkness and fight it. I mean, you'd be silly to do that, right? What do you do? And the creepiness goes away. Light is safe. <laughs> light can be warm. Who here loves twinkly lights <laughs> on the patio? You like putting them on the patio? Come on, you love that. <clears throat> it gives you this warm feeling, and the glow can be warm. You know all that. But light can open up the path. 
It can show you where to go. It can keep you from being scared. And here, in him was life. And he's talking about eternal life. This one, this word, died and rose again. If he never rose again, we'd be stupid to be here. It'd be dumb. We'd be, totally be in vain. There'd be nothing to it. But he rose again so that he defeated death, and he gives his followers, those who surrender their life to him, his life to live. So we have life. And see, that's the light of the world. The Bible says that he's the light of the world, but the Bible also says you're the light of the world. So why do I open up today's thing about not staying in the church? Well, we don't just want to turn the lights on in here. Because there's an amazingly dark world out there. You don't believe me? Go turn on the TV for about one second. And all you're going to see is evil and darkness. And you're going to say, oh, I can't stand this and all that. And you're going to complain like I do. And the point is, you know when you say that? Next time you say that, just take your finger and don't point it at the TV. Just point it back to you. Not because you're dark. You are in the sense that you're all sinners, but now you have eternal life. And what the Lord is saying is, don't hide your light under a bushel. Go stick it up on a hill where it'll bring light to a dark world. There's life in the light of the gospel. You getting it? You're to bring life into the darkness. You come here and we communicate and love one another and fellowship and learn the word and sing praises. We should be doing that. But let's not just stay here all the time. Let's go out there and bring the light of Jesus to the world. Right? In the dark places, in the tough places. If you say at your work, well, I mean, it's tough. It's really, uh, you know, man, I'm being, you know, attacked at work. Good! That's where you're supposed to be. Who else could go there? You. You have this. So do I. And in him was life, and the life was the light of men. It brings men to light, life from death, his light, he, Jesus, the word. It brings us to life, but then the light shines in the darkness. That's what I'm saying. Go take it out. And the darkness didn't comprehend it. You say to yourself, why? I've prayed for this person. Why don't they believe? Well, the next chapter of John says, men love darkness rather than the light. The beginning of Romans says, men and women suppress the truth. You got two reasons so far. 2 Corinthians 4 says, the enemy of our souls veils the spiritual eyes. I'm paraphrasing. So what should you be doing? Fight your battles with the word of the Lord, or with, with prayer and the word of the Lord, and then have a spiritual Holy Spirit move where the veil gets lifted off. I hope I don't embarrass this guy. He's in California right now. But this man uh, who is Mike Reynolds' um, co-worker, his name's Ian. He went with us on the trip. He used to come to church here. He's moved to California. We're praying that he'd move back because we love him so much. But anyway, he was a cynic. Like, he read the Bible three times so he could attack Christians. He read it through three times. Go talk to Ian. He knows his Bible. And Mike even shared with him at work one day, and he said, listen, I don't want you to ever talk to me about that again. Or I'm going to go talk to HR. Don't talk to me about it. 
And Mike kept praying and just laid off but prayed. Ian read it the fourth time and gave his life to the Lord. See, that's where we do our battles. But the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it. So there's that aspect to that verse. But you know, there's other aspects to that verse because the word or the phrase comprehended there is really weird. It's like that the light shines in the darkness and the people in the dark flamed it out, extinguished it. And some people believe it's as if, you know, those who are at the cross, like in Psalm 22, cheering for the cross to kill Jesus and extinguish him. And yet, what happened? He rose again. He, they couldn't extinguish the light. You come in here with a flashlight, <laughs> at least one that you couldn't turn off. You can't extinguish the light. There's nothing you can do. You're helpless. Well, this. I want you to know this, and then we're going to close. People are like, wait, it's 11.58. Is this true? Yeah, it's really true. Because i got tons more to say, but we're only just starting. But if you look at the Gospels, the first three Gospels, this is fascinating. Do you remember this? You read it sometimes at the Christmas time. You read the Luke one especially, but... At the beginning of Matthew, Matthew gives this genealogy of Jesus Christ through his father, Joseph, who adopted him. Do you remember that? And that shows that Jesus had the legal right to rule on the throne of Israel. Remember that? Mark doesn't really make a genealogy because his gospel is short and to the point. But Luke, at the beginning, gives, at the beginning of the book, gives a genealogy of Jesus through Mary, his mother, showing that, you know, biologically, uh, uh, Jesus was a descendant of Adam and came through the line of, of David there. Here's what's fascinating. In John's gospel, you get the first five verses. In other words, the Holy Spirit impressed upon John, I want you to give the divine genealogy. Jesus was eternal, not created. He was there at the beginning. You tell him about the divine genealogy. Well, here's what I hope is happening now. I hope what we're doing is we're starting out on the right foot. We're coming to that place where if you haven't been saved, the Lord is going to capture your heart through the book of John. In fact, I love this book personally because I think there's six or seven places different people give testimony. Are you noticing the word I'm using? as to who Jesus is. We'll talk about it as all the different people. They're giving testimony. John speaks, when I read to you in chapter 20, he speaks of evidence. 
What John is saying here, I think, by God is saying that you just don't have to believe willy-nilly. If you're a person who investigates things, wants to look at things, here's what the Lord says. Wonderful. I've got the evidence. And that's what we're going to be studying and looking at. Let's pray. The Sunday school teachers are going to jump up and down. Well, here we go, Lord. We started off in your book, the book of John. Lord, I know you want to do a special work in our hearts through this book. I know, Lord, that you want to capture our hearts if we've already been saved, and you want to see an explosion of praise because you know that that's the greatest and safest place to be under the shadow of your wing. But Lord, there may be people who are either here in the sanctuary or are listening online and they don't know that they have eternal life. And this book is for that too. Maybe primarily, but it's for that. That people would call you the Messiah, whether it's our Jewish friends or our non-Jewish friends, whoever it is, and that you make sense out of life because you've come and paid the penalty for our sin and enables us to be reconciled back to you, Lord, so that our whole life is ordered and not chaos. Logos. Wow. And Lord, as we uh, come, I think we're going to sing another worship song. Is that true? I pray, Lord, that just these things would bounce around in our minds and our hearts and we would pour out our praise to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.